I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and division chief, pediatric palliative care at Riley Hospital, Dr. Adam B. Hill. His new book is Long Walk Out of the Woods, a physician's story of addiction, depression, hope, and recovery. A pediatric oncologist and palliative care physician, Dr. Adam B. Hill suffers stress and delusionment with the culture of medicine, leading to alcoholism, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Then, while in recovery, he loses a mentor to suicide, revealing the extent of the burnout epidemic in the medical field. By sharing his harrowing story, Dr. Hill shows how this problem manifests, considers ways to address it, and confronts commonplace attitudes regarding self-care, recovery, treatment, empathy, and vulnerability amongst medical practitioners. His voice has been featured in USA Today, Chicago Tribune, the Indianapolis Star, and many more. Uh, Dr. Hill has been named a National Mental Health Champion Award winner for 2019. Welcome to the show, Dr. Uh, great to be here. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. Um, first question is, what makes your story or your struggle um, so unique? I actually think it's a, a really common story, truth be told, and and one that uh, a lot of people can identify with in, in all walks of life. And so, you know, I, I think the reason to tell it is, is for the opposite effect that this is such a common story. So many people struggle with anxiety, depression, addiction, or have loved ones who've walked that journey and, and path. And, you know, somebody who works in a, a professional field where vulnerability isn't often welcomed or accepted and there's this ideology of what a, a physician or a doctor should be, I I tell this story to hopefully humanize the the doctor experience, the nurse experience, the medical practitioner experience um, in a way that strips it away some of that pretense and just really opens it up to a conversation about our shared humanity and that, you know, no matter what station of life or or our background that we we can all go through these experiences and there's uh, hope on on the other side and in pathways of recovery. So there are two parts to the. I don't know if there are two parts to the book, but in because your story obviously, as you just said, is in the context of the medical profession, and we do revere our doctors, and somehow they seem to be, or we think they are, above these kinds of struggles with addiction and recovery and depression and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but so it does. Your story does come or and and uh, I would just unravel itself uh, in a medical scene, which is different, um, but the story is for all of us because we can all end up or have the, this exact same struggle in terms of, of being addicted and depression and suicide. So um, so the book is for everyone, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, I hope so. And, and that's, you know, I tell it in the medical context and the experiences of, of what I've lived because uh, that has been my professional arc, um, but I really try to tell it in a, in a human way about the the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell about each other and how often there's a disconnect in the way we stereotype or stigmatize people who may have mental health and or addiction stories and, 
and really the truth is much deeper than that and uh, our our, our stories, if given an opportunity to be listened with empathic ears, I think uh, we see there's so many more things that draw us closer together than separate us. And so that's why I tried to tell this story as, you know, my experience in my profession, but but more so I think it's um, it's one that a lot of people can, can relate to. What about your story? Let's start from the beginning. I mean, you chose a profession, which obviously is, a, you have to be bright, you have to be a good student, all of those uh, that would, would describe, you know, let's say you're just your typical, your average medical student. Was there something mm-hmm. in you, though, in your character, or did you did you think you had a predisposition for depression, um, for alcoholism, um, addiction, those kinds of problems, you know, step back before you went to medical school in your own family's situation. Sure. I mean, I think the, um, I know the, you know, scientific literature and will suggest, uh, partial family histories and genetics as well as environmental uh, factors that can affect um, both of these conditions. So mine is not unique in that, that I, uh, do have some family history in um, and, and alcoholism and in and, and depression, and so that was part of my lived experience and sort of our our family. Um, but then I, you know, individually I struggled early on in my youth with some social anxiety and and angst and difficulty fitting in and assimilating, and I really. Uh, I worked hard to strive for perfection and academic and athletic achievement to kind of mask my internal vulnerabilities of how I didn't feel like I fit in. And so some of that high achievement um, was a, a coping mechanism and a mask. And so I performed really well and felt validated in that, but inside had uh, this growing turmoil that, that started even early in my youth. Um, and then I did that for, for decades until that eventually, you know, partially unraveled um, as a strategy to, to survive and not have to address how the emotional complexities of how I was really feeling. How did that start to unravel? So early in, in medical school, I really, um, you know, I'd been high, you know, top of my class in high school and college, I'd performed at high levels and suddenly being dropped into to medical school and having this recalibration and a, uh, abrupt thudding down this ladder of academic achievement where my first test scores were 63% on an anatomy review and used to, you know, having 98% validations of who I was and my core identity was so tied to this intellectual merit and I just couldn't um, equate the two. If I was no longer, you know, achieving at this high level, then who was I? I must be a failure. I'm an imposter. I'm not worthy of these opportunities. And and I struggled, began to struggle, kind of in that space of of redefining who I am. And um, and so that's kind of the very beginning of when some of the depression path of my story started, but it was really more of a fracturing of my core identity and and having to to try to figure that out. And trying to figure it out, did you ever think about going for help? Did you go for help? Mental health? I did. I did. And um, early on in medical school, I started to 
feel withdrawn and not find the joy in simple things in life, sleeping more, not eating as much. And But at the time, I a very common thing happens in medical school where you see the signs and symptoms of the diseases you're studying and sometimes feel that physical manifestation of those things in yourself. So at the time for me, I was studying about thyroid conditions and endocrine anomalies. And in my mind, I made up this um, sort of this protective denial um, you know, mechanism to say, oh, I must have a thyroid condition. And I went and got that checked out and and everything was normal. And then I went on in my way, on my way. So I didn't have this self-awareness or this insight into that I was really struggling with depression. Although trying to seek help, I, you know, really struggled to, to connect the dots myself. Um, and then it was kind of another year or two later of being in and out of that grind and struggling more so at times than others with depression that, um, I, I started on antidepressants for the first time and really sort of had this understanding that this was part of my story and that, you know, needed more aggressive treatment. What was happening in your circle of friends, if anything, either with yeah. the other men? Yeah. I mean, in terms of how they yeah. were supporting you or not supporting you or not recognizing the problem or how were you connecting to them? be so isolating in the first few years of medical school. The expectation is reading and studying 16, 18 hours a day and then taking tests and then sleeping and sometimes eating and doing it all over again. And so I'd lived by myself in an apartment and, and really, you know, dedicated myself to to the studies and because I had been feeling invalidated in these first few test scores and in my mind underperforming. So I did what my perfectionistic mentality taught me to do was to work harder and grind harder and study more. And so I actually, you know, was quite isolated away even from, from family and friends, even physically being, you know, away from them um, hours away. So, um, so yeah, I was, I was, I felt uh, very much on an island and um, alone during those times, although they were reaching out of a very loving family, a very loving support uh, network and friends, but I sort of just stayed so focused in, in, in the books and those studies that it became this self-fulfilling prophecy. So you were rejecting them, even though there were people there, family, friends, wanting to connect with you, wanting to help you. And I guess seeing or at least having some idea of the struggle you were going through, but you wouldn't allow them to. I think unintentionally, yes. Um, not maliciously or intentionally, but just in this, you know, mindset of like, this is the most important thing in my life. And I have to, you know, focus on this um, being academic studies. And so, so yeah, un- unintentionally that happened uh, until about three and a half years into medical school when uh, I really opened up to my parents and my sister. I was single at the time. I'm now married with children, you know, years later, um, but uh, but reached out to them and, and they really sort of helped me get connected with a therapist and a psychiatrist and start mental health treatment at that time. So th- that was the beginning. Uh, would you call that the beginning of your recovery? So in um, in a long-winded way, yes, um, but not in the scope that I write about in in this book. Because I, 
I'd started on antidepressants then and had been successful uh, for a year or so, got into my top choice in, in residency program, which is the next phase of training after medical school where you really do your in-person, you know, taking care of patients. Well, I have and, to interrupt um, you because if you got in your top residency school, and I do know how difficult that is, you must have brought yeah. that 60% or the 60s, I mean, really, uh, th- you know, throughout your medical four years uh, to be top of your class. So um, definitely, you know, recovered to a, a, a space where I was a really high, you know, candidate uh, to to be able to choose and go where I wanted for a residency, and and did that by, um, you know, really grinding and working hard and and dedicating myself to to that. Not because I was the smartest person in in my school or my class, but I just had a work ethic that I think allowed me to perform at a high level. And and so, you know, with that, you know, starting in residency, I'd started to feel better. I actually went off antidepressants um, with my treatment team, owning that this might have been an isolated major depressive event and the stress and rigors of medical school, et cetera, et cetera. But hindsight is not always 2020. Um, and so I started to struggle again with depression sometime in the middle of that three years of training and went back on antidepressants and once again did pretty well throughout the rest of, of residency training. And uh, the real struggles and what I really focus, um, I mean, I tell the whole memoir and the arc of my story in this, this book, but the, the real struggles then came at the next phase of my training, which was fellowship training and specifically the phase where I was working and training in oncology and pediatric cancer. And um, it was during those times that really the I found the lowest depths of depression and then eventually active addiction. So th- that was your li- that was going to be my next question. What was your lowest point? Um, and I can understand if you're wor- oncology and childhood cancers and uh, th- those are <laughs> tough <laughs> Tough places to be, I guess. So, um, so you would say that was like the nadir or the lowest part or the, the low, your low point. How did you bring your? How did you? So what happened? How did you get out? How, how did you get out of that um, quagmire? Yeah, sure. About a about a year into that training, and I'd always felt prepared um, to be able to work with families during really difficult times. I felt. And I still feel I have a skill set to be able to do that. I find meaning and purpose in helping people through difficult times. And so I, I felt like I was prepared to take on that task of, of working in a very emotional space. I don't think I was prepared for the, um, the cumulative effects of emotional trauma that we go through in the medical profession of you know, of seeing death and tragedy and unexpected events. And, you know, for me, doing chest compressions on a six-month-old baby on Christmas night and having a kid die in your arms in the emergency room and then having to tell a family they weren't going to be going home with their child and, you know, event after event like that and where do I put that and how do I process that. And, and for years, I and the medical community taught me just to bury that down deep and then move on. And so about a year into, 
you know, oncology training and the frustrations of just working in modern medicine and not feeling like I could connect or help people for every time I would see a patient, I would spend hours on the phone with an insurance agency or filling out paperwork or all these roadblocks and obstacles that are put in the way of people who are just trying to do their best to help people um, became incredibly overwhelming and exhausting and throwing on top of that the sleep deprivation, more cumulative effects of seeing death and dying and and tragedy and um, it really, all of that started to wear on me and it was during that time that, you know, still struggling with um, some depression, I would grind through the day and work through the day and then go home at night and have a drink. And to me, it was a coping skill and a mechanism and it worked. So I could do that to calm my, you know, the emotional uh, turmoil that was going on in my head and it would allow me then to be able to come back into work the next day. Unfortunately, what any alcoholic would tell you is that plan only works for so long. What once was one drinks becomes two, becomes four. And after a few months, I was drinking a fifth of vodka to sleep at night. And so that was really the depths of feeling uh, the physical manifestations of substance use and and alcoholism and feeling really weak and tired and run down and um and so you pra- I was going to say so you're practicing medicine and then you're you know, you're drinking at night not mm-hmm. getting sleep and then you are you're in a vulnerable p- position but you're I would assume also putting your patients in a vulnerable position um at the same time so I think I mean I get that you know question a lot, and I'm never going to pretend that um, that I wasn't in a space where I was you know not or I was able to give a hundred percent to everybody who was under my care. I was, but I was also incredibly functional and wasn't sort of in this sensationalism of mental health and addiction that we often do or say, you know, that I was like stumbling down the hospital hallways or bumping into walls or drinking while on the job. It wasn't that kind of story. I know and acknowledge I was struggling and and needed help, um, but I tried to, you know, compartmentalize the different aspects of, of my life so that I could still be just as I was in medical school, work harder, grind harder, do what I have to do, and then, you know, have the release and the relief of um, of drinking, you know, pretty much every evening and on the weekends. Um, and do you think there's more of a stigma, Adam? Do you think there's more of a stigma stigma <clears throat> when it comes to doctors who are um, alcoholics or drug addicted than with, say, the general population because our expectations are different, as you said in the beginning of the interview, for physicians. You know, we look at them, maybe not today so much in the godlike figure because I think things have changed. And, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's certainly obviously a profession that we respect and we expect that person to probably be in a, uh, you know, in a, in a, a very you know, high position. And so to profess 
as a physician that, you know, I have a problem, that I have a drinking problem, that I'm an addict, do you think that's more difficult in terms of the recovery process? It is. And I mean, I think the stigma is the stigma and it's a pervasive one culturally. And I don't pretend to, you know, that, um, I mean, we're, we're just as affected in, in that space and in the medical profession, um, as, as other people, um, in, in any profession. We, we do, though, and have for decades set up this internal institutional stigmatization of uh, individuals working in medicine that has prevented people from seeking help and treatment and in the ways that doctors are employed and nurses are employed and, and therapists are to get medical license or credentialing opportunities in your employment, we've asked people uh, quite pointed, and I argue and, and lobby and advocate that they're discriminatory questions. Have you ever been in mental health treatment? Have you ever sought counseling? Have you been on antidepressants? Have you been in addiction and treatment? And and we've done this under this pretense of like protection of patient safety um, purview, but what it's done instead is prevent people from seeking help because they're fearful of having to answer those questions so people don't get help um, because it could affect your career and your opportunity to to gain employment. I don't pretend that this is unique to the medical profession. I talk to lawyers and teachers and pilots and uh, military, you know, um, professionals that, you know, go through these these same uh, questions and but in, in this idea of well if we can identify people that are struggling in this questionnaire survey type way then we'll prevent you know patient safety events um, what we've actually done is people work sicker people don't talk about it it's hidden this away people work with untreated mental health conditions every day and are fearful to get help and and so it's had a uh, dramatic it's had the opposite consequences. Yeah. yeah, it's had the opposite effect. And, and if you think about it, who's going to sit there? You're applying for a job or a residency or, you know, taking the bar or whatever you're doing. And, and you're going to say, yes, I've been in therapy for three years and I'm a recovering alcoholic. I mean, nobody's going to do that. It doesn't even make sense. So Right. And, and what, we've tied your yeah. ability to gain employment to it. And for, fortunately, there's been movement and momentum. I've been speaking out publicly for about three years now, but a lot of people um, that have been lobbying for those questions to be removed for us to quit stigmatizing individuals in recovery, because the truth is, I saw treatment proactively went into treatment and recovery and was stigmatized after the fact. Well, I was already one of the safest people working in the hospital system when I was discriminated and stigmatized because I'd already sought help and treatment. And so I think we have it all backwards. And fortunately, we're working towards a space of improving this. But the the modern epidemic we see of suicide in medicine and untreated mental health conditions and workforce distress is partially because of this uh, these policies. So we're talking about policies now. We only, we only <clears throat> do have a few minutes left. So what do we do to change it? We don't want to ask those kinds of questions and that, those kinds of situations. What is, and you're working to, to, to change that. Where is, what changes? What direction are we going in? What are we doing? 
Sure. My, my two yeah. philosophies have always been top-down and bottom-up from the top-down. We need to really look at how we're preventing people from getting into help. And this just isn't about the medical profession, but any, any career, any access to resources, how we connect people to help and remove those obstacles and barriers, whether it's insurance, whether it's co-pays, whether it's resource allocations, whether it's you know policy or actual hiring practices, that we normalize the conversation that mental health is health and physical health conditions and mental health conditions are the same in how we approach them and we shouldn't separate out the two. And then from the bottom up is normalizing the conversation and that's why I've written this book. I've lost six colleagues to suicide in my career. I see colleagues struggle every day. I see patients struggle every day. I see families struggle every day because they feel the weight of living under the stigma. So I want to normalize the conversation so that um, people will seek help and treatment and see that there's paths forward. And I've done that in many different ways and and programs that I've developed as well as just being an advocate and public speaker. And and really one of the biggest reasons why I wrote this was that, you know, we can all have pieces of this story and um, it doesn't define us, but it can make us stronger and, and, and help us connect together. Well, now you've written the book, obviously, for all of us, and that includes your family. So maybe this is the last question. What would you tell you? You said you married and you have children. I don't know how many or how old they are, but what would you tell your children when one of them says, I want to become a doctor? What would you, and and when they're in high school or even younger, how would, what yeah. would your advice be? That's a great question. And usually during my presentations, it's the last slide and I get choked up when I talk about it. My children are four and two and actually my wife is pregnant with a third on the way. (laughs) Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. Um, It's going to be a wild 2020 for us traveling and speaking and a third baby. So (laughs) appreciate it. Um, but it, it's really that I, I speak up and tell this story because I want them to to live in a world and to feel loved and embraced no matter what their story is and and that they feel unconditionally supported and respected and um, you know that their father has this lived experience and and really it's not what happens to you or what the struggles that you go through in your life but what you do next and how you get up um, and I want them to, to know and hear that message of hope and and so that no matter what they want to do in, in their life or who they are or who they love or um, what job they, they choose, that I'm going to be in their corner supporting them. And, and, and I hope to send that message to as many people as possible. Well, I think you're doing that, obviously, in your book, and uh, you've left your children a great legacy. Uh, um, I want to mention the book again because I, I want – all of us to go out and, and my audience go out and get your book, Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. And we've been talking to the author of the book, Dr. Adam B. Hill. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Absolute Thanks for sharing. pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for the time. Yep, great to have you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 